This is the first Easter morning, and uh, several hours after the women first went to the tomb and so forth, two of the followers of Christ, they're walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Uh, from what I've read, it's about seven miles. Uh, it, and I measured it. It would be the same distance like going from here to Carlisle Place out on Zebulon Road. And while they're walking that distance, they're discussing the events of the past few days, and a man begins to walk with them. And he asked them what they've been discussing. And they're somewhat astonished and amazed that, that he appears not to have heard the news about the death of Jesus, which was major regional news that everyone knew or should know at that time. So they tell him the whole sad story of what had happened. <clears throat> they still don't recognize him. And so he, and of course that's Jesus, tells them the real cause of their trouble, that they had been foolish and slow of understanding of the prophets, or they would have realized that, that what had happened was in fulfillment of prophecy, that the Christ had to suffer before entering into the fullness of the glory. And then we know from the previous verses here, I began reading in verse 28, but in the previous verses, he gives them a lesson from the Old Testament about the Messiah. And we come to verse 28 where I read, and all the events change. Now, it was customary if you traveled, it was customary to stop at dark, obviously for safety reasons and so forth. And so they, they do that. They do what was customary. They, they stop, and they invite the stranger to stay with them. And most translations create the idea that Jesus pretended that he was going to keep walking, that he acted like he was going to keep walking, J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, said he gave the impression that he meant to go further. But I don't think that was really the case. He was not acting. I think he really did intend to keep walking rather than stop. <clears throat> and the point is, without the invitation that these men extended, I don't think Jesus would have stopped. In verse 29, says they urged him strongly. <clears throat> in Acts chapter 16, in the record of the conversion of Lydia, it says, And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she urged us until we did. That's the same tone of the language here. They urged him strongly. Do y'all, uh, I'm not trying to belabor what seemed like a small point, but there was a great commentator, a man years ago, and he said, how often does Jesus encounter us also on life's way and he still desires to enter where he is invited? You remember the Christmas carol we sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem, how silently, how silently, how the wondrous gift is given, so God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. I never liked that verse. Uh, I grew up in, in an evangelistic background and tradition where, where this line would be say, said often. When people would be urged to receive Jesus, it would be said, God is a gentleman. He never goes where he is not invited. You ever heard that? You ever said that? Don't answer. No, please, don't answer. I thought that statement sounded trite. Uh, it portrayed God as weak uh, and impotent and totally at our mercy. And so I didn't like that statement. But then... This, from all indication, I think Jesus would have kept walking had they not urged him 
strongly to come into the house with them at dark. Now, if you've not invited him to be your Savior, he's not your Savior. And so that's true. He goes where he's invited. Now, how this fits with the preordination of God and the foreordination of God, I don't know, but that does not eliminate human contingency or human freedom, uh, the contingency of our actions. Jesus stayed on because he was invited. Uh, one time I uh, had a man who's somewhat cynical in his faith. He had heard me preach here on a Sunday, and sometime later I saw him away from the church building, and he said, "Are you, Chip, are you giving the impression that if we don't give money to missions that God may send some people to hell? And he said it real sarcastically. And I could tell, I mean, he, that was exactly what I think the Bible says. Now, I say that from Romans, how then can they call on the one they've not believed in? How can they believe in the one on whom they've not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We just have to look at our responsibility to get the message out. They had to look at the responsibility of inviting this man. And so they give an invitation, and now they begin to recognize him. So in verses 30 and following, we've got the recognition. They're at the table. He takes the bread, and he blesses it. In some way, his appearance was different. His post-resurrection appearance, he looked different than before the resurrection. We're not told all the details. It was normal to, uh, at the beginning of a Jewish meal, for someone to be the host. They asked the, go, uh, the guest to be the host. He formally thanks God. He breaks the bread. And at that point, their eyes were open. It does not say, then they opened their eyes. Their eyes were opened by someone else. Maybe it was the sight of the nail marks in his hands. Maybe it was the way in which they heard him pray. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that at that moment, God chose to open their eyes and to make clear that this was his son and they were in the presence of the risen Lord Jesus. Now, as soon as they recognize him, he, he disappears from their sight. We can only assume that there was no reason for him to stay longer. The purpose of his visit had been fulfilled. Now, <laughs> I'm not trying to sound trite or funny, but isn't there a note of disappointment here? <gasps> it's you! Boom, he's gone. I mean, after everything built up to that, and then um, he's not physically with them. Now, in verse 32, it said, They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? They're, they're talking to each other that, they're, that something had happened to them as they, as they were on the road and he was opening the scriptures to them. That's what ought to happen. That's what I long for when I listen to sermons. When I sit under the preaching of God's word, I long for my heart to be touched and to be stirred to burn with enthusiasm for God and his word. And if you've experienced that, and I trust you have, you know what I'm talking about. And you know it doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes it does. It's hard to pinpoint exactly why, but it's God's spirit at work. I'm not talking about critiquing sermons. I had a man tell me the other day of a friend of his that's in a, carrying out a little project right now. He goes around to, in, at the churches in Macon, and he's writing up reviews like a cafeteria, you know. And so he had visited uh, this church 
First Presbyterian recently, and he wrote up a review, and he told my friend about it. And he rates the music and the preaching and the atmosphere. And, <laughs> hey, I've been here too long. I, I can't just, I, I said to my friend, I hope he's not half as arrogant as that sounds to me. I said, I'm glad God's got you in his life because I'm afraid I wouldn't have been patient to listen because his critique is all from what he thinks. Did you ask him to critique it based on had he prepared his heart for the preaching of God's word? Did you ask him how much prayer he put in in preparing to worship God? Did you ask him if he was drawn closer to God? During that, was his heart burning within him? You can't write that up in a report. You can't evaluate it. So what he's doing is evaluating with a consumer mentality, like I go to a, you know, a sporting event or an entertainment, say, well, how was the building? How were the people? And so I said the very notion that you can evaluate that is, is mistaken. I don't always know why it happens, but that's what should happen. And if you will pray sincerely for the person who preaches from the pulpit at your church each week, and you pray that those sermons will come alive and they will come home to your heart and you prepare your heart, I, I would, how do I put this? I was going to say I would wager. I, I, would, I would guess that you will be affected in ways you never knew. Now, for that reason, my wife and I always tried to ensure that our children were sitting under the preaching of the word. All, by the time they got the driver's license and they were seniors in high school, we, they still had to go to church. We left it up to them whether they wanted to go to the youth ministers or like that. But here, here is one reason why. You don't know when the spirit may move. And what if they're not there that night or that morning? And so when parents tell me or have through, and thankfully this isn't often, that, well, my child doesn't like it, so I don't force them to go. You don't know when God may change their heart. You can't program it. And it might be that service where God would touch their heart. Many of you, y'all listen to Alistair Begg? Anybody here listen to, all right, some of you. He's on the radio, and he's got a Scottish accent, he's, though he's lived in America for many years. He, he pastors Parkside Church in Cincinnati, uh, going on probably about 28 years now. He grew up in Scotland, and I heard him tell this story on the radio. I, I've listened to many of his sermons through the years, but not too long ago I heard him tell this story. There was a guy who showed up there in Cincinnati at the Parkside Church where Alistair is pastor, and he said he was wearing a leather jacket and he had this real strong Scottish accent. And so immediately there was this kinship since Alistair grew up there. Uh, he had, this fella had left his home in the highlands of Scotland. He had gone to Glasgow and he had taken a job when he was, uh, you know, a young adult. Now, in the course of leaving his home, he pretty much had abandoned his Christian faith. And, or at least he strayed from it very, very far. And he began to go out and to party and hit the bars and the nightclubs and to hang out at places and, and to meet people, and he met this young woman. And as time went by, they uh, formed uh, quite an affection for each other, and they really loved each other, and they could foresee getting married. But there were lots of problems. There were lots of issues. And one of those main ones w was something from his own conscience that would not let him alone. He knew that he had not only left his parents' house physically, he'd also left it spiritually. And he was far from his heavenly father, and he knew that. And then he discovers that this young lady that he really loved is Roman Catholic. And he grew up 
in a bastion of reformed Presbyterianism in the highlands of Scotland, and neither families could cope with the idea of our Catholic daughter marrying a Protestant and vice versa. And he understood that. And so she knew less about spiritual things than he did, but she understood that as well from a family standpoint. So to try to come up with some kind of middle-of-the-road approach, they decided they would go to the Roman Catholic Church for Mass on Sunday mornings, and then in the evening in Glasgow, they would go to St. George's Tron Church where the internationally known preacher Eric Alexander was the pastor. And in the Roman Catholic Church, they would go. There'd be a short homily out the door. And all they did was kind of show up. But it seemed to do something to bring peace in the families by having that approach. Now, one evening, they went, as it was their custom, to St. St. George's. And Eric Alexander was preaching, and they listened to him preach. And he preached from the 